0: If you've been enjoying my responses to Ernest Hemingway, you might also enjoy reading my posts on my Substack Casts. There I write about my experiences as a teacher, short takes on a range of contemporary and modern poetry, fly fishing, the outdoors, the Adirondack Mountains, and many other topics. Check it out at arniesabatelli.substack.com That's A-R-N-I-E S-A-B-A T-E-L-L-I at substack.com I'd also like to mention another way you can support this podcast if you don't want to make a monthly contribution you can go to buymeacoffee.com and find me there and make a one time contribution the address is buymeacoffee.com forward slash Arnie Sabat 7. I'm not sure why it's that, but it's A R N I E S A B A T 7. And there you can find instructions on how to make a one time contribution. Thanks again. Take care. Welcome to my podcast. I'm Arnie Sabatelli, and this is Hemingway Word for Word, in which I hope to offer episodes on many of Hemingway's short stories and novels. I will attempt to provide a complex analysis of his writing, pushing to consider ideas all too often neglected by traditional readings of his work. I will occasionally reference, critique, or debate with articles, films, books written about him, but mostly, these are my own ideas, distilled from many years of reading, writing about, and teaching Hemingway to college and high school students. Before settling in, I recommend reading or rereading the work at hand and having a copy of the text with you as you listen. I hope you enjoy these episodes and that you will consider subscribing to the podcast or giving me your support with a small donation. For today's podcast, I've chosen the story Indian Camp, again from In Our Time. While for now I'm looking at a story that doesn't deal with couples or relationships, something we will return to in this collection with stories like Cat in the Rain, which I'll look to in my next podcast, this story is critically important as a setup for themes and imagery that reappear throughout the collection and throughout Hemingway's body of work, and as initiating the theme of maturation and artistic awakening of the reoccurring character in this collection and in other stories, Nick Adams. This is the earliest story to feature Nick, and we find him appearing throughout the collection in the End of Something, Three Day Blow, The Battler, Cross Country Snow, and in the culminating long, breathtaking story, Big Two Hearted River. I recommend you take some time now, if you haven't already, and read or reread Hemingway's story, Indian Camp. In many ways, Indian Camp serves as a kind of guide to the way Hemingway fashioned and conceived of his short stories, and as in Hills Like White Elephants and The End of Something, which I discussed in my first two podcasts, we again find the following. Deceptively simple language, masking a subtle but decidedly present point of view, a landscape that mirrors and extends the deeper meaning of the story, much in the way a painting juxtaposes shapes, colors, lines a central character who seems to be creating or reading and responding to the same symbolic metaphorical imagery the reader views. The beginning of the story, again, at first seems like an objective, non-character-based perspective, but upon closer inspection, we come to find that this is not just a camera-like, straightforward, objective depiction of a scene. Take that opening sentence, for instance, quote, "...at the lakeshore... There was another rowboat drawn up. That word, another, to describe the rowboat the quote-unquote Indians have come in must be from a specific point of view, for whoever notes this signifies the Indian's boat as another, as a boat that isn't normally there, where only the camp boat should be. Only someone who lives at the camp would describe the second boat as quote another rowboat, And soon the story does settle most squarely with Nick when he notices the sound of the oarlocks, that the other boat is moving further and further ahead of them in the mist all the time, despite that the Indian rowing their boat was, quote, working very hard. And there's more to be said, too, about how this initial use of the word hard gets repeated at one of Nick's probing questions at the end of the story, is dying hard, daddy? One can find also a series of shorter chiasmuses in these repeating words, boat, mist, lake, row, rowing, Indians, shoved off, pulled up. I address this form, the chiasmus, more extensively in episode two, but briefly, a chiasmus is a form of repetition in which words or phrases or images are repeated in reverse order from their first appearance. One very short chiasmus that stands out to me comes in the second paragraph with the words, in the mist, then Indian, and then we find Indian in the mist. And in the middle of this short chiasmus, we find, quote, Nick lay back with his father's arms around him. So that chiasmus, that folding in and then back out repetition, frames or centers this important image of Nick, reliant on his father, held, protected by him, in the way the lines might direct your eye in a painting. So here again, from the outset of the story, we're struck with a quiet but intense point of view and the visually ordered repetitions that help take our eye to certain critically important images. Here again, The influence of painting can be clearly seen. We are reading something that has been carefully constructed that has a distinctive shape and tone, a work of art, and notably an artistic expression that is deeply linked with a central character, in this case, Nick Adams. During the crossing, Nick tries to ascertain where they are going and why, but all his father chooses to tell him is that an Indian woman is, quote, very sick on the other side of the lake, saving his lesson about breached birth for after they arrive at the shanty. This phrase, very sick, bears a striking resemblance to the woman's retort in Hills Like Wet Elephants to her partner, quote, there is nothing wrong with me. I feel fine. In other words, I'm not sick. Pregnancy is not an illness, not anything that is wrong. And again, we find ourselves in a story dealing with pregnancy and birth, which we see throughout the collection in Cross Country Snow um, and throughout Hemingway's work, and a man who thinks of pregnancy as a kind of illness. But at the beach on the other side of the lake, Nick finds the other rowboat already beached, and the man rowing the boat pulls it, quote, way up on the beach an image that notably appears again in The End of Something. Here and throughout the story, Nick pays close attention to images of hands doing things, rowing, pulling boats up, holding lanterns, his father's hands washing each other, performing the C-section, his father's hands, quote, coming away wet when he pulls back the blanket to reveal the suicide. Here, as in Hills Like Wet Elephants and The End of Something, We see the central character whose point of view grounds the story paying very close attention to the imagery of the story itself, the location and relative positions of the two boats, the darkness of the lake, the slow coming of the dawn, and how these images stand in relation to each other, using them to deepen their own understanding. And it's hardly a surprise when Nick puts his own hand in the lake at story's end as a kind of tactile response to what he's witnessed. But more on this later. Other motifs and patterns of imagery quickly come into focus. And here again, I would argue that it is Nick noticing these patterns, reading the story from inside the story, very much like the woman in Hills Like White Elephants. Whereas the end of something begins at twilight and ends in the darkness, this story begins in the pre dawn and ends with sunrise. And images of light and dark are noted by Nick's deeply curious perspective throughout the story. He pays attention to the darkness of the lake, unable to see the other boat in the mist, which he notes twice. He notices that it was lighter on the logging road leading back to the camp. He pays especially close attention to lanterns and the hands holding them. Going into the shanty, they return back into darkness, where a woman now holds a lantern, moving into a place. Even the adult men can't bear to be because of the pregnant woman's screams. It is telling that the women are there, though, doing what needs to be done, the men not strong enough to handle it. And what Nick finally comes to encounter on this haunting, dreamlike journey through the mist and the darkness is a place of deeply charged events and imagery. The central images and events are especially rich with metaphorical meaning. A woman on a lower bunk of a bunk bed whose incision delivers a human being into existence. A man on the top bunk of a bunk bed whose incision takes a human being out of existence. Juxtaposed, directly, one on top of the other, occurring at roughly the same instant, these stunning images and events cannot be seen in anything but symbolic terms. But let me back up a little and note something that I think is critical to the meaning of the story. The father, the doctor, is trying to help Nick contend with a woman's screams, something the other men in the story have fled from, and he tells Nick, quote, but I don't hear her screams, I don't hear them, because they are not important. Here again, we find a logical argument being used to deal with an intense emotional moment, as we saw in Hills Like White Elephants when the man kept arguing that an abortion was a, quote, perfectly simple operation, just because it was procedurally simple. But this is different. In this case, this use of logic is essential and useful if the woman and the child are to be saved. Were the father to succumb, as the other men in the story have, to the emotions evoked by the horrific nature of her screams, he wouldn't be able to save her, to do his job. And likewise, without his scientific knowledge of breached birth and what must be done surgically, she would not survive. Here, the Jungian concept of logic-based animus, as opposed to the emotional, artistic mode of understanding housed in the anima, plays a critical role in the story, especially when we move to the series of questions Nick presents to his father at the end of the story. This is exactly the kind of situation when emotional responses are not sufficient or helpful or important. What is important, the only thing that is important from the doctor's perspective, is to do what he needs to do to save his patients. The use of logic, the reliance on the animus of one's psyche, is an essential, necessary tool here. But this animus-based response reaches its limit in the story. Notice how differently the father Slash doctor sounds when answering Nick's series of questions at the end. Gone is the precise medical certainty. In fact, the first thing he does when he realizes that the husband has slit his throat is to have Nick removed from the cabin. The irony here is that what Nick has just witnessed in terms of blood and gore and potentially disturbing imagery is certainly at least and likely more gory than what is seen in the dim light of the lantern in the top bunk where the Indian man has committed suicide. Note, too, that the C-section is performed with a jackknife, the suicide with a razor, the latter surely making a neater, more precise incision, which correlates with the doctor's answer to Nick's question about the difficulty of dying, as, I think it's pretty easy, implying that it's living which is hard. But Nick has already seen the man's slit throat, along with everything else, And the point of view here, Nick, notes some critical details that the father first pulls away the blanket, whereas he asks someone else to pull the blanket from the woman, lest he get germs on his fingers before surgery. So Nick is seeing these things in a comparative way, is already working to piece them together. And most striking in this scene, perhaps, is that his father's hands, quote, came away wet. In the darkness of the shanty, eyes can't see color. So this observation is certainly being seen through someone's eyes in the shanty, through Nick's eyes, who also notes the way the blood has pooled in the indentation of the mattress. And what a remarkable thing to bear witness to, especially if you are someone as curious and intent on knowing as Nick is, who, in an echo of his later self in the end of something, even says, I know, when his father starts to explain what's going on with the woman, to which his father swiftly and emphatically responds, you don't know. The father is bringing Nick along to teach him, to help him to understand what he does as a doctor, to gain doctorly scientific knowledge. Unintentionally, he ends up teaching Nick so much more than he ever intended through this experience. The limitations of scientific knowledge, the need for artistic understanding to contend with certain essential dynamics of life. For Nick to witness one incision that brings life into the world side by side with another incision that takes life out of the world may well be the thing that ignites his awareness of the power of metaphorical meaning, something we see him utterly awash in in the final story of the collection, Big Two-Hearted River, where virtually every image pulses with richer metaphorical meaning. These two occurrences are paradoxically exactly the same and at the same time exactly the opposite. Something rational thinking has a particularly hard time grasping. Both have come with loss of blood, incisions into flesh. In fact, the man having cut from, quote, ear to ear roughly approximates the exact size of the incision the doctor must have made in the woman's abdomen. And how can the same thing bring about the exact opposite? Life, death. Nick quickly becomes aware and learns or starts to know that what he's witnessed moves far beyond the logical, rational, animus based responses his father is so adept at. For me, The ending of the story is one of the most remarkable of Hemingway's. Not only does it help us to consider ideas I've addressed above, but it also shows us a character who is implementing this new way of knowing, this new knowledge. First, Nick goes to his father for some explanation of his string of powerful imagery, asking questions that have no good logical responses. He attempts to contend with it all on his father's terms. On the return trip to camp, though, he sits away from his father, no longer laying back with his father's arms around him, and looks out to the landscape, very much as the woman in Hills Like White Elephants or Marjorie in The End of Something look closely at their landscapes. And what does he see? The sun coming up, a bass jumping, making a circle in the water. He then touches the water, feeling its warmth in the, quote, cool chill of morning. And these images all echo and retell the story we have just witnessed. A human being has emerged from nothingness into life. A bass jumps out of the wet darkness of the lake. A second ago, invisible. A man has slipped back into nothingness. His being somehow vanishing. The bass falls back out of sight into the water. The circle it leaves on the water emphasizes this as part of one thing, the one thing Nick is seeing and is starting to know, that life itself can come to an end, that life itself mysteriously springs out of the same nothingness we return to. By touching the water, he imitates his father's touching of the man's blood, his hand also coming away wet. And the man's blood, quote, pooled just as the lake is a large pooling of liquid. Nick is, in these stunning few sentences, reenacting the story in purely metaphorical terms, recasting it, reaching into it, and touching it. His knowledge here is not at all like the cold logic his father uses, and must use, to save the woman, but rather the knowledge artists use to contend with philosophical mystery, a more visceral mode of understanding, something touched or felt rather than explained. Nick is making a kind of poem or painting at the end of the story, a coda to the story that he has just lived through and that we have lived through with him. And this is a lot like the preamble story of Horton's Bay in the end of something. And that last line is both mystifying and perfect as a final expression in this work of art. In the early morning, on the lake, sitting in the stern of the boat with his father rowing, he felt quite sure that he would never die. Here again, as in the end of something, notice the striking use of prepositions in the first part of that sentence. In the early morning, on the lake, sitting in the stern of the boat, with his father rowing, in, on, in, with, Nick is working hard to locate himself as a kind of setup for what follows the semicolon, almost as if he's saying that all of these things somehow might or should add up to his feeling that he will never die. But he has also seen that bass jump, the sun coming up, felt the warmth of the water as a repetition of his father's actions. And while that last thought that he feels quite sure he will never die certainly speaks to his naivete, He may even think that the only way to end your life is to slit your own throat. I think it also speaks to the witnessing of a power of artistic expression to contain and make graspable such paradoxes. Just by juxtaposing an incision that brings life to an incision that takes life to the bass and the lake and the sun, Nick is able to give himself a kind of answer his father can't supply— He may well feel so very alive because he has witnessed, along with all the gore and ugliness, the power of art to somehow contain and express that which goes far beyond logical understanding. How can something almost exactly the same, a bloody incision, be exactly the opposite? Only in artistic understanding do such things make sense. And do we become quite sure of something, a kind of immortality felt through contact with the immensity of art to give us access to these infinite unknown things. Some final notes. Here we find perhaps Hemingway's first work that uses pregnancy and birth as a centering motif and powerful symbol in his work, something that continued to fascinate him throughout his stories and novels. A Farewell to Arms stands out as perhaps the most powerful use of this in his novels. Consider, too, that the whole of the story, if you were to draw a picture or a kind of diagram of it, as I like to do on the whiteboard when teaching the story, brings us to yet another aspect of the story's meaning. In my drawing, I first make a circle to represent the lake. I then draw some dotted lines showing Nick crossing the lake. Then off to the side of the circle, two straight lines to represent the road they walk down, where it starts to get lighter until by the end of the story, the sun has fully risen. The lake and the adjacent road could be seen as a womb and birth canal. And Nick's movement through the story is one of a kind of birth, from the embrace of his father on the dark lake, the womb where things move away from him steadily in the darkness and are unknown, unseen, as perhaps a fetus hears voices and sounds out there on the other side. To the rising sun, with the poem, he writes by noticing the jumping bass, the circle it leaves, his placement of his hand in the warm water, becoming the blood his father has also touched. Where Nick is born into a deeper, more mature self, yes, This is one of the traditional readings of the story, but he's also, and more importantly, I would argue, born into becoming an artist. In Big Two-Hearted River and Cross-Country Snow, Nick makes specific references to his writing, to wanting to become an artist, to notice the kinds of things artists should notice. And in many ways, this book was Hemingway's nod to Joyce's A Portrait of the Artist, with Nick as Hemingway's Stephen Dedalus. Another often overlooked, not discussed aspect of the story is to ask what Uncle George is even doing in the story. Everything I've addressed so far works without him, yet Nick even includes Uncle George in one of his probing, unanswerable questions he poses to his father, which are so important to his birth or awakening. There's even a pause before he gets to that question, the last of the series. Daddy? Yes. Where did Uncle George go? The more I read the story and consider it, the more convinced I am of what my sadly recently deceased teacher and dear friend and gifted poet and Hemingway scholar, Donald Junkins, always argued, that Uncle George is the father of the baby. From a plot perspective, it makes a lot of sense. Why else would he be there? Certainly, he has sought out the services of his brother, but is it merely a humanitarian gesture? His response to the woman when she bites him surely doesn't support him as a humanitarian, quote, damn squab, bitch. And one of the Indian men looks at him, quote, reminiscently. Not only is it particularly rare to find an adverb in Hemingway, but this particular word suggests that the Indian man is remembering having been around Uncle George in the past. So Uncle George must have been a visitor here. White men impregnating indigenous women is also an all-too-common and particularly tragic reality of white and native history in this country, Uncle George as father also gives a better explanation for the husband's suicide. Does he witness the child before he kills himself? Does it appear too white? But for me, I also like to consider it in relation to the other deep, complex questions Nick poses at the end of the story. Remember, it's right up there with, Do many men kill themselves and many women. It seems that Nick knows George is somehow responsible for the baby, though he surely may not understand yet about sex. Notice he's not asking why Uncle George came along or why he yelled at the woman or why the woman bit him. He wants to know why Uncle George has fled. And surely, if Uncle George is the father, His disappearance must have something to do with the great degree of guilt he is feeling, perhaps knowing that he is not only responsible for the woman's pain and near death, but perhaps for the suicide of the husband as well. Nick, who is so inquisitive and precocious and so desires to understand on so many levels as a young artist, also may want to know and to understand Uncle George's emotional status. What can drive a man to flee from this, to suffer in this way? It is indeed another big thing Nick considers as he awakens into a rich and complex understanding of what life is, and it is a question an artist, a writer, would ask. And given all of this, it makes sense to me that he feels as if he'll never die, for he feels so powerfully alive to see the bass as the baby, as both the baby and the man who kills himself, the lake as the blood he has witnessed, his own hand now wet like his father's, all these dizzying parallels is exhilarating, thrilling. I feel that same thrill every time I read the story or witness any powerful work of art, as all good art thrills us when it provokes us into deeper understanding of ourselves and the world. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will consider subscribing or offering a small donation to assist me in the production of this podcast. These are both easy to do by going to the podcast website at anchor.fm forward slash Arnold Sabatelli. In my next podcast, I will return to another story about couples in the collection in our time A Cat in the Rain, and it will give us an even more direct glimpse at someone within the story reading and using elements of the story to understand and express herself as an artist. Thanks again.